From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. On the show today, we hear how Auctioner Louisiana General Health is working to combat opioid addiction in the state's rural communities. We also learn about growing concern over the recent popularity of Louisiana's unapproved schools. But first... Over the last year, state legislatures in the Gulf South saw a deluge of bills aimed at LGBTQ people, especially trans youth. And as the Gulf States Newsroom's Drew Hawkins reports, these policies are causing some doctors to leave a region that's already experiencing a serious shortage of health care providers. Being a parent to small children comes with a lot of responsibility and a lot of noise. Should we go somewhere else? If we can step into, like, maybe just the next room, yeah. that's totally fine. That's four-year-old Connor Kleinman building or maybe destroying some Lego structures with a toy crane. Most of his other toys are packed away in moving boxes. Uh, we move next week, so... I go up early. Yeah, so the- Connor's dad, Dr. Jake Kleinman, is a pediatric cardiologist. He specializes in heart transplants for small children. He was one of only three in the entire state of Louisiana. But then he and his family moved to New York. I caught up with them in August before they left. He says it was a really hard decision, but for his six-year-old daughter, Isabel, it wasn't difficult to understand. She recognized that we can't live in a state that's trying to make laws against our family. It's, it's, when you break it down like that for even a six-year-old, it's pretty simple. Kleinman says with the increase in anti-LGBTQ policies in the state, especially anti-trans legislation, it just doesn't feel safe for them to raise young children here. So it was a very clear moment for us. That's Jake's husband, Tom Kleinman. So Jake was at work. I was working from home, and we were both watching the Senate Education Committee debate the uh, Don't Say Gay Bill and the Pronoun Bill. Tom says when the time came for people to speak out against the bills, doctors, teachers, concerned parents, conservative lawmakers got up and walked out of the chamber. They wouldn't even listen to the testimony. And Jake and Tom had heard enough. It was very clear that they didn't care. They didn't care about our family. They had an agenda they were going with, and we really weren't welcome in the state anymore. And to put the the icing on the cake to say they they scheduled this vote during the first day of Pride Month. Um, that was no coincidence. Dr. Jake took to social media to vent his frustrations. He went to his Instagram page, Heart Doctor Daddy Shark, and posted a photo of him and Tom and the kids. In the caption, he announced they were leaving to protect their children. That post went viral, and it caught the attention of other LGBTQ medical providers in the region, including Dr. Alex Mills. Reading Dr. Jake's post was like looking in a mirror. Mills was the co-director of the LGBTQ clinic at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. That clinic was shut down earlier this year after state lawmakers criticized it for providing gender-affirming care to trans kids. The motivation to stay here to provide practice and care is dwindling to almost zero. So I read that post from Dr. Jake and was like, yep, totally get it. Feel the exact same way. The sooner that he has a chance to feel valued and his partner feels valued, the better. I'm, I'm in the exact same boat. And Mill says he's not alone. 
On internal listservs and group messages, other medical providers in the Gulf South are looking for jobs elsewhere because of the rise in anti-LGBTQ legislation. You know, send me your CV. I'll make sure that it gets on the right desk, you know, when that position opens. There haven't been any formal studies, so we don't know just how many people are leaving. But here's the thing. The Gulf South really can't afford to lose any medical providers right now. Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama are all designated as health professional shortage areas, meaning there just aren't enough providers to meet the medical need. And there's also the ripple effect caused by a loss of providers. LGBTQ patients often turn to providers who identify like them for support. One patient interacted with me and sent a message um, that was saying, I don't feel safe here anymore. I feel suicidal. Um, And that's, again, just that sentiment of not feeling valued, feel feeling less than in a state. Um, I'm sure it's not just one patient who feels that way. Kleinman says he's gotten a lot of comments attacking his family's decision to leave. They say he's abandoning his young patients, but he never wanted to leave. He planned on building a world-class pediatric heart transplant program in Louisiana, and he and Tom were going to retire here. Louisiana has driven us out. Louisiana has not given back to us. Conservative state legislators in the Gulf South have vowed to continue to introduce more bills that target LGBTQ people. Future studies may show what some are seeing now. More providers leaving a region that badly needs them because of discrimination. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Drew Hawkins. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership among public radio stations in Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi. During the first two years of the pandemic, public school enrollment in the U.S. fell by more than 1.2 million students. While some enrolled in private schools or formal homeschooling programs, others switched to unapproved schools that have little oversight and don't need state permission to grant degrees. And in Louisiana, roughly 21,000 students are enrolled in school programs like these. Sharon Luria has been covering this story for AP News, and she joins us now. Sharon, thanks for being here. Hello. Good morning. These off-the-grid schools are so unmonitored that they seem kind of hard to describe. So what exactly do we know about these schools? Who are they? How are they regulated? And how many are operating here in Louisiana? So there's there were over 9,000 such schools operating in Louisiana at the last school year. Around 98% of them are just regular home schools where parents are teaching their kids. Um, but we did find at least 30 schools that had at least 50 students. And let me explain basically what these schools are. So you can have approved home study if you want to homeschool your kids, where you provide some kind of proof to the state that, you know, your child is learning, such as test scores or a portfolio, and then you'll get a diploma when the child graduates that's equivalent to if they graduated from public school. But for a non-public school not seeking state approval, the only requirement is really that uh, you have to be uh, in session 180 days a year, and you have to register with the state and just tell them the name of the school and how many kids are attending and the contact info of the head of the school. And uh, these non-state approved schools, they're not allowed to take any public funding. So it's kind of a deal where, you know, in exchange for I'm not taking any public money, I really get to operate in total freedom. All right. So I know most schools, public, private, even these non-traditional have certain things that they are required to teach. These schools, 
they don't have these requirements. The title, non-public schools not seeking state approval, seems to reject any kind of state oversight. Right. It sort of even implies, you know, they don't even want state approval. That's right. That's not what they want. Um, And so, yeah, there's no requirements for any kind of, um, you know, curriculum certification for the teachers, nothing. And in fact, the Louisiana Department of Education put a warning on its website that they could not even verify if these schools meet the legal legal definition of a school. Right. And so what most parents do is if they want to homeschool their child using this option is that they may homeschool them this way for the first several years of their life. And then when they get closer to graduating from high school, they may switch to the approved option. Right. And and according to state regulations, you have to do that, I think, by 11th grade year. You register your homeschool with the state to to actually get in the system to have that diploma be recognized by the state. Now, I know these types of schools, the unapproved uh, non-public schools, have kind of grew in popularity during during the pandemic. We've seen it kind of an offspring of the, the parents' rights movement. Can you tell us more about that movement, why these schools appeal to parents who want more control over what their children learn? So the number of students enrolled in such schools uh, jumped from around 11,500 in 2017 to over 21,000 in uh, the 2022 school year. So in just five years, it nearly doubled. And so it there's been obviously a huge outburst, um, shooting up of popularity of these particular schools. And um, when I spoke to parents uh, who created their own private schools, you know, for their children this way, uh, generally what they talked about was um, more personalized learning, you know, not having to worry about standardized tests, um, getting to travel more as a family, more family time, things like that. When I spoke to young people um, who took this on, option, often what they brought up actually was school discipline. They felt that the discipline in their schools um, was really unfair. Uh, A lot of them complained about kind of post-pandemic chaos in schools and how it just, bullying had gone up, bad behavior of their classmates had gone up, and they were just sick of it and they didn't really want to be in that environment anymore. Um, And also a lot of parents with uh, special needs kids also just feel the public school system is not serving their needs. We're speaking with Sharon Luria, reporter for AP News about unmonitored schools in Louisiana. Sharon, let's get into some of your reporting. You you tell of diplomas essentially for sale at, at an unapproved school for, for $465 uh, that didn't even require class attendance. What was going on there? Right. So I visited um, Springfield Preparatory School in Springfield, Louisiana, and uh, I'll say, first of all, that, you know, 98% of these schools are just homeschooling families that are trying to do the right thing by their kid. And But it does create a space where private schools can kind of take advantage. So I went to the school and they do offer actual classes, actual services. They call themselves an umbrella school for um, for homeschoolers. So they do, you know, you can actually take classes in math, art, science there. You know, there are students there who are who are legitimately learning. But in addition, the, the principal there takes this, really takes the doctrine of parental rights to its logical conclusion. She just believes in parental rights so thoroughly that if, Anybody comes to her and says, I was homeschooled, even years earlier, she is willing to grant them a diploma for a fee without them having to take any classes. You know, she just says, I trust the parents. Only the parent decides if their child is educated. If they say they learned enough, 
then they learned enough. And so she says she's not selling diplomas. She's just providing services to homeschooled families. Uh, but it was really interesting to me to see, you know, this is really that idea of parental rights taken to its absolute logical conclusion. And my question for, I guess, the parents that would... would um choose this this type of school is what do you do with that diploma do do colleges even accept uh diplomas from unapproved schools right so um what happens often is that uh a parent can actually be uh you know can actually enroll their child both in the approved home study program and an unapproved school at the same time so sometimes parents will you know to make sure they get that approved diploma that's accepted by all the colleges you know in the last couple years of their child's education sign up for the approved program but if they don't do that and they just you know continue with the unapproved school and get um, a non-approved diploma then because they don't qualify for federal financial aid um, a lot of local colleges uh, will not want to accept them but some colleges do so there was a very interesting case several years ago of an unapproved school called tm landry this was a huge scandal that broke out i don't know if you remember this this, but they had all those viral videos of kids. Uh, yes, I remember that. Harvard and Yale. And it turns out that they had, um, according to reporting from the New York Times, uh, allegedly had falsified transcripts to get students in. Um, but those kids did get into Harvard and Yale, even though they were from a non-approved school. On the other hand, I talked to some local colleges around here, like Delta College, um, where they told me, no, we wouldn't accept a diploma from a non-approved school. And so it's just so interesting to me that, you know, like you have these local tiny little two-year colleges that are kind of putting in more effort to look into to background check a school than, than Harvard or Yale did. And I know you investigated a similar school. It was called uh, Second Chance. W what did you find there? Right. Second Chance Academy uh, is a private school that originally, you know, was created to give a second chance to kids who struggled in the public school system or were expelled, things like that. Um, and originally it was a um, approved private school, a state approved private school, but state inspectors came and visited and found some deficiencies. So they revoked the approval in 2000, but the school just kept on going. And I spoke to one mother there who had a really horrific experience with her children. She discovered that um, the teacher was sending inappropriate, sexually harassing texts to her daughter for months. She discovered that, uh, and she called the police, that teacher has since been um, arrested, but he is out on bail. After he was arrested, there were also additional allegations that came forward um, about potential past sexual abuse, uh, including, you know, the mom learned that he had been arrested for uh, alleged rape of a child in 1996, but pled down to a lesser charge, still allowed to teach. And so she was horrified, number one, that this teacher was around her kids. Number two, her son graduated valedictorian, and yet he kept on calling around to like local colleges and they weren't accepting his diploma. They said, no, we can't accept a diploma from that school. It's not approved. Um, he did end up being able to get accepted to community college, but it wasn't the one he wanted to go to. Well, is there any indication that the state or anyone might put more oversight in place to ensure that certain standards were met at these institutions? And what might those steps be? I repeatedly, um, you know, asked the Louisiana Department of Education if they would do anything in response to some of the things that me and uh, my co-reporter, Charles Lassier of The Advocate, had uncovered in these schools. And they repeatedly said uh, through a spokesperson that they had no legal authority to 
have any oversight of these schools. And so then we asked who does, who is responsible. And they said, you know, if there was potentially an issue where someone was upset about the diploma they were given, they could write a complaint to the attorney general's consumer protection division office. But that's really, you know, painting this as a buyer beware issue, not an education issue. Sharon Luria is a reporter for AP News. Sharon, thanks for being here. Thank you so much. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. Oxner Lafayette General Hospital recently received a $1 million grant to combat opioid addiction and abuse in rural communities. The grant, which comes from the Health Resources and Services Administration's Rural Communities Opioid Response Program, will be used to pay for preventative programming and educational outreach, among other initiatives. Elena Mashka covers health for the Acadiana Advocate and The Current. She spoke with our managing producer, Alana Schreiber, for more. Well, let's just start by discussing some of the overall data. How bad is the opioid epidemic in this part of the state? And what are some of the reasons that the problem is so persistent in rural areas? Yeah, so um, I attended an event in Jennings, which is in Jeff Davis Parish, and I unfortunately wasn't able to get specific numbers on overdoses, which is how, you know, in many cases we measure how intense uh, uh, the issue of opioid abuse is in certain communities for that particular parish. But um, I recently, for another story, uh, found some numbers on overdoses in Calcasieu, which is the neighboring parish. Um, Over the past two and a half years, uh, roughly 151 people died uh, of an opioid overdose in a lot of cases involving fentanyl. So it's, it's definitely a very prominent issue. You've also spoken to some doctors and members of the outreach team at Oshner. What have they said about how they've seen this crisis escalate in recent years? What do they think are some of the main causes? Yeah, so the numbers have actually fluctuated quite a bit. And and uh, doctors in or the doctor I spoke to in Jennings told me that they've actually improved a little bit over the past year. But that said, overdoses um, have increased significantly after changes in policy and professional standards that were meant to reduce the overprescription of the same type of opioids that led people into opioid addiction in the first place. The fact that doctors prescribe less opioids today because of changes in policy and professional standards is a good thing. Um, most medical professionals would say in the sense that it gets less people hooked on opioids on a daily basis. However, it also created a market for substitutes. And um, after their prescriptions ran out, a lot of people who were already hooked on opioids have gone out to seek them elsewhere. And that in turn has created a market for illegal opioids, illegal drugs, especially fentanyl. Yeah. Well, well, let's go to this grant. What exactly will it be used for and what has it already been used for? Yeah. So there's three main pillars of spending in the scope of this uh, grant, and that's prevention, treatment and recovery. So that means there's educational events that uh, will be funded through uh, these grant funds. There's also staff like a social worker for the um, for the clinic in Jennings and a nurse practitioner. 
Um, there's contracted peer navigators who help guide people to resources after they've suffered an overdose and try to help them get on the path to recovery. There's also a data analyst um, who will follow the program and measure its success. So there's really a wide array of spending that will be sort of assisted and made possible through this grant. We are speaking with Elena Mashka, who covers health for the Acadiana Advocate and The Current. Well, you recently went to one grant-funded event at Jennings High School. Can you just tell me a little bit about that? The event was really an educational event. So it combined having a speaker who um, sort of spoke about his personal experience with opioid addiction and how it impacted his life, as well as some panelists who were um, familiar with the situation specifically in the Jennings area. Uh, so there was the DA, the regional DA, as well as uh, someone from Acadian Ambulance and um, the medical director for the local public health region. So it, it, it sort of combined this um, personal experience of a person who dealt with addiction with some local data, some local sort of insights. And I think what I found most surprising was I, I spoke to some students there and I, I was really positively surprised how receptive they were to this uh, to this educational sort of programming. It really seemed like it resonated with the kids there, especially having someone share their personal experience. And they afterwards shared some of their personal experiences with me of how addiction had impacted their life. And, and it really seemed like it was something that almost every single one of them had been touched by in one way or the other, which I think tells us a lot about how significant of a problem it is in our communities. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in recent years, we've also seen a lot more investment in harm reduction. You know, there's naloxone, the overdose reversing drug, and there's also now places you can go or even numbers you can call while using drugs to minimize the chance of death. But some people argue that these resources just incentivize users to use more. According to the medical professionals you spoke to, what is the role, if any, of harm reduction when it comes to combating this crisis? Right. So harm reduction is obviously like a really complex and, and as you mentioned, in some cases, controversial issue. Um, providing clean needles is seen as enabling by some critics, um, but even less controversial harm reduction practices have their caveats. Uh, test strips, for example, have only limited functionality when it comes to testing pressed pills where concentrations can vary significantly within one pill, which is something that experts have told me. Uh, but harm reduction is definitely something that the people who are administering this grant are looking at. Uh, for example, one thing they're looking into is providing Narcan or Naloxone through um, vending machines, which is something that they have found to be successful in other parts of the country, but there is not yet anything like that in Louisiana. The other component that I think is worth mentioning here is uh, medication-assisted therapy. For the medical professional that I spoke to for this particular story, that was a really, really important piece. And while it's not necessarily harm reduction, uh, I think it sort of fits within that scope. And it, it basically helps people get their regular life back and hopefully someday live without any substance dependency at all. Uh, by providing a substitute um, to the opioids, especially the 
illegal opioids that they were using in the past. Elena Mashka covers health for the Acadiana Advocate and The Current. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. Thanks to our guest, reporter for AP News, Sharon Luria, and health reporter for the Acadiana Advocate and The Current, Elena Mashka. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our assistant producer is Aubrey Procell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Historic New Orleans Collection.